God's word in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, would you accomplish what was just written and prayed for many years ago and many times since, that you would be honored in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Well, this morning we come to the end of this first half of the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul's prayer appropriately functions as a transition. And we're going to be looking at this theme, To God Be the Glory. If you have a bulletin, you can see the outline on the back. We're first going to see about glory to God, then glory in Christ. Then we'll spend most of the time glory in the church, and then at the end, glory eternally. Well, Paul, in this letter, is passionate about God's glory. And he's already written about this several times. Flip back to, well, you may not have to flip, but to chapter 1. And there he proclaimed to us the riches we're given in Christ. And notice verse 5, right before verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Or if you look down in verse 11, it begins, In him we have obtained an inheritance, and that keeps going and going until verse 12 ends with, To the praise of his glory. Or, Right after that, verse 13 begins in him, and it wraps up in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Over and over, he's writing, saying Jesus did these things to the praise of his glory. It's not just here, though, for Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's not just Paul, though. On the night of Jesus' birth, what do the angelic messengers proclaim to the shepherds outside Bethlehem? Glory to God on the highest, and on peace, and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. And Revelation 4 describes that in heaven, the heavenly beings and the 24 elders proclaim, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory. And we use this word in church a lot, glory, but what does it mean you and i considered what most people think when they hear the word glory these things came to mind some people think of the civil war movie some people think of past fame oh the glory days or maybe a specific achievement oh being the mvp that year was the glory crowning glory of his career still others think in regards to beauty they want to restore the castle to its former glory And often, especially in religious circles, people think of it as a synonym for praise. Glory be to God. And when the Bible uses the word glory, it often expresses the display or shining forth of God's attributes or as a synonym for praising 
God. There's a weight of meaning behind those definitions. For the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, literally means weighty. Not in the sense of pounds, ounces, tons, but in the figurative sense that things that are heavy on our heart. And the weightiest or most important of all things is God. If you put God on the scales and anything or everything else, God is like an elephant in comparison to a mouse. Thus, when Christians try to encapsulate, what is the chief purpose? Why are we here? Why do we exist? They said, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In other words, God must be seen as the weightiest, the most important thing in life. Then due to that, we want to honor Him with our lips and lives. Now these ideas and definitions can be hard to conceptualize, so let's apply this to a common scenario. Whose opinion matters the most? You're with a group of friends or co-workers, and they invite you to join them for their party. You know from their conversations, they won't just be having cheese and crackers, but they'll be heavy drinking, leading to drunkenness, and accompanied by crude joking. So we have the scales. On one side of the scales is being liked, being with friends. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked. But on the other side of the scales is God's word that says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So which is going to be heavier in your life? And whichever you choose, that is the one that gets the glory, or the one that's seen to be most important. Or to give another scenario, you do well at something, and you're recognized. It might be something as informal as someone giving a passing comment. Oh, you did a good job today. Or it might be that you get an a reward a award for your success. To what then do you give the reason of your success? Yes, it might have been your dedication, your hard work and skill. But where did all of those come from? Whatever you say or internally think is the reason for your success. Success is the one who gets the glory. And even non-animate objects give glory, for the heavens declare the glory of God. Thus, anything that shows God to be important, or reveals God, or rejoices in God, displays God's glory. And we could spin out other applications, but hopefully this is made clear, that for God to get the glory in our life, that's not limited to our spiritual activities, such as Bible reading, praying, or singing. Rather, it flips the script. For everything we do is spiritual and to be done for God's glory. Thus, to seek to live for God's glory makes us start asking questions like, how do I use my day off for the glory of God? How do I parent to the glory of God? How do I drink orange juice to the glory of God? And as for the orange juice, you can read a great article by John Piper, uh, Desiring God. But to live a life that glorifies God does not mean you need to get a new job, title, or role. You don't need to become a missionary, pastor, or get some religious role. Rather, it means using each part of your life for the glory of God. Yet, where is the place in which God's glory is most clearly made known? Well, if you want to see the glory of a former painter, you often go to a museum. If you want to see the glory of an architect, you go to the buildings that he designed or the houses. If you want to see the glory of a beekeeper, you eat their best honey. So where does 
Paul desire God's glory to be known? Well, he gives us two answers in Ephesians 3. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And the second one is the one we expect. To God be the glory in Christ Jesus. So let's look at that, the second section, glory in Christ. And understand the glory in Christ. We need to see the larger picture of the Bible. The crowning act of God's creation was mankind, which God made in his image. In a much greater way than any other part of creation, God intended for his glory to be seen in humans. Thus Psalm 8.5 declares of mankind, You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 1 Corinthians 11.7 says, A man is the image and glory of God. As we stated earlier, God's glory is seen when his attributes or character is displayed. Now, of course, as humans, we can't display God's omnipotence or his eternality or his omniscience. However, when we show God's love or his justice or his creativity or any other aspect of his character, God is displayed and glorified. God's glory is seen on this earth. And yet sin causes us to send mixed messages on God's character. As Romans 1 says, we no longer live just to display God's praise, to honor God, but we live for ourselves and praise images of things on earth. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in our actions and lives. In other words, when we say that humanity is sinful, we're conveying that we have missed the whole goal of our existence, that we were made to bring glory to God. Sin is not just merely breaking rules, though it is that. It's more than that. It's a loss of glory. Thus, though humans were made to reflect God's glory, we give a distorted image of that glory to each other. And in contrast to that distorted image that humans give of God's glory, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus Jesus came and showed to the world God's glory. It was not the fullness of God's glory, for we read in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself by becoming a man. And for most of the time on earth, Jesus concealed the fullness of his glory. Yeah, you probably remember the story where on the Mount of Olives, Jesus went up with three of his disciples, and there he was transfigured before them. Luke 9 describes it this way. And as he was praying, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You know, in this story... Three disciples were shown the glory of Jesus that he had concealed during his life on earth, but that he has had for all eternity. As well, as they heard Moses and Elijah talking about how he would depart, talking about his death and resurrection, they heard of the glory that would be unfurled at Jesus' cross and resurrection. And the point of all this is that the glory that the disciples saw was not added to Jesus, It's what Jesus had for all eternity. It's what he concealed so that he might come and bring glory to God through his death and resurrection. Thus, 
If you go in a museum and you see a painting of Jesus as a child, you might see a halo around his head. But that's not what Jesus looked like on earth. He looked like any other baby, but now Jesus' glory has been made known. And though we can't currently see it with our physical eyes, we can see it with the eyes of our heart. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's the Christian's blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we long for the day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus, when Paul prays here in Ephesians 3 for God to receive glory, we expect him to say, that the place in which that will occur is in Jesus. We know, look, that's the very place where God has chosen to show His glory. Yet though that's true, this was not the first place where Paul prayed for God's glory. Paul prays first in verse 21 for God to receive glory in the church. Now to be clear, he's not setting these up as equals, though the church is as important as Jesus but rather, he's saying that's not just as individuals, but as the church, we are to glorify God. To Him be the glory in the church. That's our third section, which we'll spend the most time on. Glory in the church. Now, just like the word glory, the word church gets thrown around a lot. And we often don't define it correctly. You know, the word for church, ecclesia, means called out ones. And it was used to refer to an assembly, like a group of people gathering together. And it wasn't just spiritual or religious ideas. You can read in Acts 19, and in Acts 19, non-Christians get together and they're called a ecclesia, what we call a church, the same word is used. And interestingly, if you go read the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, and if you read about the Israelites coming to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments, there in Deuteronomy 4.10 and 9.10, it calls that gathering with God and them at Mount Sinai, it calls it a ecclesia. It calls it a church. Now there's many reasons we could talk about why that has broad meanings, but the point I want to draw now is that when ecclesia, church, is used in the Bible, it means where God meets with his people. You know, our church, our ecclesia, is not so much about us getting together, but God gathering with us. Thus, 1 Corinthians 14.25 says that when God's people are gathered, there should be such a distinctiveness that even unbelievers say, God is really among you. Now, the first usage of the word church in the New Testament is by Jesus. When he's talking to Peter and he says in Matthew 16.18, I will build my church. And then, the only other mention by Jesus in the New Testament of church is Matthew 18, 17, where the steps of rebuking someone for sin means ultimately you bring it to the church, Jesus says. And yet Jesus is clearly connecting to the ideas in Deuteronomy that where the church is is where God is assembling. Because you may remember there Jesus says, Matthew eighteen twenty, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Thus, ecclesia is the church, is the assembly of God with his people. However, 
It's impossible for those who've been called out by God to all gather in one place currently. Thus, in the New Testament, the word church refers both to local assemblies and also the universal group of all believers. As we've gone through Ephesians, we saw the universal church concept in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And he put the, all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is over the church, all believers of all time and in all locations. But also, the local church is made clear in verses like Acts 14, 23, where it says they had appointed, appointed elders for them in every church. In other words, there's more than one. So if there's more than one, that means you have to have some idea of like a local church. Now, potentially a helpful metaphor or analogy might be family. If I talk to you about the Mollenkopf family, that could refer to people who are all over the world, have different places where they live. Or I could be talking about the ones that live here in Wichita Falls. Both of them are, though, called the Mollenkopfs. One refers to a distinct group locally, and the other refers to a group around the world. Likewise, church can be used in the New Testament. Sometimes it's talking about the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, and sometimes it means the believers of all time and space in this world. And so, to understand God's word, we have to be clear, is this passage talking about the universal idea or the local idea? Yet if we stop there, and many do, then the New Testament idea of church would not be fully understood. For the New Testament makes clear at least six explicit things that each local church should be doing. As well, there are many implicit commands that I don't see can be fulfilled without some idea of a local church. So let me give six things. And if you pick up the sheet, I have all these on the, the, the page there. First, 1 Corinthians 11 commands the church to take the Lord's Supper. Do this and remember to me. He's telling them and Paul commands them in 1 Corinthians 11. Or second, in 2 Timothy 4.2, Timothy, who is called to be the pastor and an example to other pastors, is told to preach the word. Every church should have preaching God's word. Third, Ephesians 20, Titus 1, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5, all talk about leaders in local churches, men that are to be followed, obeyed, respected. Fourth, 1 Timothy 5 calls for churches to support financially those in need in their body, specifically widows. And I say in their body because if you read that passage, it doesn't have this generic idea of care for widows. It says those who have been examined and who even have been put on a list. Well, fifth, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 1 and 5, all call for churches to practice the discipline of members. You know, we have uh, men's Bible study frequently, and sometimes men from other churches will come. And if Keith or I knew of any one of those men who was doing something sinful in love, we would want to talk to them. But if they continued in sin, the next step would not then to get the other guys of the Bible study. It would be to take it to their church. Because that is the way God has ordained for us to function. And sixth explicit thing, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5, call for churches to give financial support for their pastors. And yet so often, people will take aspects of what the New Testament says it is a church, 
and declare that is a church. For example, they say, well, look, I meet up with Christians at a coffee shop and we study the Bible. That's my church because where two or three are gathered, there I am amongst them. Well, yes, a Bible study at a coffee shop is great. But of those six explicit commands that this is what you need to be doing, the only one that I see can actually be fulfilled by a coffee Bible shop, Bible shop, Bible study, is taking communion together. All of the rest of them, there's no way they can live those out. There's no preaching. There's no church discipline. There's no leaders that they're submitting to, supporting and overseeing them. Or many people will appeal to their college Bible study or even their own family and say, well, this is my church. Well, the family is a wonderful gift of God, but it is not the church. Still others seek to wipe away many of these commands by appealing to the universal church. But as we saw in Acts, the apostles commanded leaders to be in every local church. If the apostles saw the need for multiple churches with leaders in it, why would we today say there's only one church with some amorphous leadership? And considering all this, I think it is mostly true to say, and often people say this, well, church means the people, not the place. I say mostly true because it's not just the people, it's the gathered or assembled people. 1 Corinthians 11 even says, when you come together as a church, as though you're not a church when you're not assembled. Yes, church is not the building, it's more than an event. Church, the Bible says, is where God joins his people as we exalt him, encourage one another, and work together for the evangelism of the lost. And yet, sadly, while many can agree that this is what the Bible says, they're still stuck with their experience that doesn't reflect this at all. Their experience with church is that, you know what? I didn't really find much fellowship and encouragement in my coffee shop Bible study was way more fellowship and encouragement. The people they knew in church were gossips, hypocrites, Pharisees. And the people they go and meet up with are kind and loving. And so there's this discord in their brain. Well, this is what I'm told this is supposed to be. And yet it's not like that. This other thing seems to function a lot more like it, but it's not everything the New Testament says. So what do we do? Well, we should grieve with those people that the very place where God wants his glory to be known has become a place very often where God's glory has been concealed and where people have been hurt and yet we also should encourage them that God hasn't given up on his church he loved her and died for her and so while it can be hard keep pressing to find a good church keep seeking to get and be a part of the place Whereas we see here in Ephesians 3 that God has made his glory known. Well, so how is God to be glorified in the church? Well, look down at Ephesians 3.10, because we already have seen part of this. Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You know, we noted then that God has for all time planned that angels and demons would come to know his wisdom. And how did he choose to do that? Through the church. God's manifold wisdom would be displayed in his manifold diversity in his church. That men and women 
boys and girls, people from every continent, every social class, people with completely different ideas except for their love for Christ are united. And God's wisdom is displayed when that happens. We saw something similar. Look again at Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To fully come to know and enjoy Christ's love is done, as he says, with all the saints. That is how God is glorified. When his wisdom, when his love is made known and he's making clear, that is in the church. And you see, there's a problem in the world that gets fixed in the church. And that's the problem we said earlier, that due to sin, we fall short of the glory of God. And the solution is declared in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You know, it is as we delight in and know Christ that we become more like Him and His glory is more seen. And how do we come to know Christ more? With all the saints. And as we become more like Him, the more we reflect His glory to this world. You know, just as the moon reflects more of the sun, the more it looks at it, so we reflect the Son of God the more we look at and delight in Him. And this is really the logic of the book of Ephesians. For Paul, in the first three chapters, which are wrapping up here, has been teaching and praying for us to know all the riches we have in Christ. And as we see Him, and as we delight in that, we'll want to obey Him. And thus, we'll see, chapter 4 through the end, are all about how to live that out to mirror Christ to the world. Thus, the point of the church, of this church, is to exalt God. Now, that might seem like, wow, that was pretty obvious, Pastor. It took you long, that long to get to that the point of the church is to honor God. And yet, sadly, we easily get distracted. The glory of God gets shifted to a focus on maintaining our denomination, or our name, or our growth, or our programs. I have a friend who worked in city government, not Jerry, though he is a friend and he does work in city government, but another friend who worked in city government and in their town, a large church was being built and there were mock wagers going on amongst the city workers. Do you think in front of the building is going to be a cross or the pastor's image? Now jokes like that only bear some humor to them if there's a little bit of truth. You know, sadly, Churches cannot become all about one person and maintaining them or maintaining their brand or doing all these things. And we get slightly off of we are here to glorify God. You know, this church is not about me or Keith or any other pastor. Our goal for this church is not to be Baptist nor to have certain political viewpoints expressed here or to hold to some system of doctrine. Rather, our goal is to glorify God, and we think that's most done by baptizing adults. And that does lead us to some political views, and it does lead to certain doctrines. But all of that is not because that's our focus. Our focus is to glorify God, which leads to other things here. And Paul's point here is that this glory uniquely happens in Christ 
and in his church. Lest you can't come to grips with God's word to the Ephesians and think that individual Christians alone can do what God wants us to do. Yes, there is a personal side to our faith, but it should never remain personal and private. Rather, God designed for that, our personal faith, to propel us to publicly join with others so that He might be glorified in His church. Some of you may know that every other year, Ligonier Ministries does a survey on the state of theology in the United States. And they have all these statements they ask, and they ask Christians and non-Christians, and then they ask them to respond with one of five categories, either strongly agree, somewhat agree, neutral, somewhat disagree, strongly disagree. Statement 22, and they ask the same questions every two years. Statement 22 reads, Worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, based on what Ephesians is telling us, I don't see how anything but strongly disagree could be the answer. And yet, 10% of Americans only strongly disagree. Like, okay, well, that's Americans. Most of them aren't Christians. Okay, narrow the scope to evangelicals, and the number, percent of people who strongly disagreed, saying, look, you can't just worship with your family as a valid replacement, only 32% agree. So what I'm expressing this morning is not the common view. And yet, based on God's word, it's what we're told. God wants his glory to be known, verse 21 tells us, in the church. Not in the family, not in my private faith, not in my small group Bible study, all which are wonderful things that God has given us. God wants his glory uniquely known in his church. Now I wonder, have you ever become aware of something that's always been there, but you never noticed it before? Before I went to college, I worked for a painting contractor. And over that summer, I came to see things about painting. And so I now can't look at a wall in the same way that I could before. Or maybe when you're a kid, you always ride in the car. And then one day your parents explain the transmission to you. And all of a sudden you're like, I hear it. I, I, I hear it when the car changes gears. And you can't not hear it. It was there all along, but... You just didn't recognize it, but now that you're aware of it, oh, it's there. And I hope that in our study of Ephesians, you become more aware, or the first time aware, of how central in God's mind the church is to his plan to glorify himself. As you see it, you'll start to see it all over Scripture, that the church is so important. And yet it's always been there, and yet for some reason in the U.S., most Christians, only a third, think it really is that essential. And so God cares about his glory in the church. But that really leads to the fourth and last thing, because this is a glorious thing to work for, because it will last throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Glory eternally. This will be the shortest of sections, because the glory of everything in this world, it fades. You may have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Temple of Artemis of Ephesus, the Statue of Zeus of Olympia, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, and how many of those seven, not kind of wonderful things, but the seven wonders of the ancient world, how many still exist today? One. The Pyramid 
of Giza. Even National Geographic says, although the seven wonders are still celebrated today, they show the fleeting nature of even the grandest physical achievements. Nature, human behavior, and the passage of time have destroyed all but one. Even National Geographic, in no way caring about God, can point out, look, the most wonderful things of the world, they are fleeting. They're not going to last. You can be the greatest pie maker of Wichita Falls. You can be the world expert in your field and everyone wants to call you or talk to you in your church or your home or your community. Every achievement here, it will fade, be forgotten, and soon lost to history. As the saying goes, one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for God will last. The only glorious thing that's glorious enough to be known and rejoiced in for all eternity is God himself. You know, Wichita Falls Baptist Church is not going to last forever. Your hobby, your treasured possession, your relationships, they'll come to an end. Those treasured possessions will one day be a burden possession to your children. As we've noted, the point is not that that means we now go out and just do spiritual things. As we're going to see in Ephesians 4 through 6, that means that we just learn how to glorify God in our everyday relationships. The point is that the glory of God should be the driving force for every part of our life. You see, Paul spent the first half of his letter with instruction, with education, because he wants that to lead us to exaltation of God. Paul is not wanting us to coolly consider some nice theological doctrines and facts, but rather he wants this knowledge to lighten us a fire for the glory of God. So what is driving your life? What are you passionate about? The adults will remember that on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was attacked. It aroused the U.S., and it gave us as a nation one mighty mission. Everything was funneled into the question, does this support the war effort? One advert read, plan your victory garden now. Get your garden plot lined up. Get the advice of a garden expert if you need it. And be prepared to grow your own victory. Even down to what you get for your vegetables should be focused towards the war effort. And by the end of the war, 40% of vegetables in the U.S., we're eating out of people's own gardens. One driving purpose shaped everything else. There's no greater or more lasting purpose than the glory of God. And God has made known to us the primary ways that occurs are in His Son and in the church. May we honor what He wants to be honored by. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you... Be honored in us. Lord, we are one of millions of bodies gathering today together to worship you. And Lord, it is our desire that we would not just be attending an event, that we wouldn't just be checking off a religious box so that we can feel good about having done this this week, but our goal is that you would be honored and glorified in us and through us. So would you allow us to be the type of church 
that honors your name. In all these things we pray. Amen.